Hey everybody, welcome to Random Musings from the Clinical Trials Guru. I really want to thank you for listening. If you feel compelled to do so, make sure you subscribe, uh, leave a review, comment, share, whatever you feel like doing. Help me out trying to grow this podcast, trying to continuously deliver value. A couple of things before we get into the show, check out the links in the show notes to my CRA Academy, my CRC Academy, both of them doing very well as far as getting people jobs in the marketplace. Check those out. Also, if you need help getting studies for your site or anything else, or even launching a site, basically any help for your site, we have a low monthly fee consulting service where we have helped many clients become and continue to be successful site owners through our background efforts of business development and support staff. Text me 949-415-6256. Please check out the links in the show notes as well for the book, The Comprehensive Guide to Clinical Research. It's been selling really well, getting very well received by the community. Thank you guys so much for that. Also check out the YouTube member page. Join this channel to get perks. That's my YouTube uh, membership. It's 10 bucks a month. You get a monthly mastermind exclusively. It's a Zoom call every month with other YouTube members. Uh, You also get weekly videos exclusive to the YouTube members on how to use social media to improve your opportunities in life sciences. So check that out. Really means a lot to me. And thank you so much again for listening and enjoy the show. Hey, Guru Nation. So we're back with James Saperstein. He's the CEO of First Wave. Uh, it's a biopharma, clinical stage biopharmaceutical company specializing in the development of targeted non-systemic therapies for GI diseases. And we're going to get into the pipeline. It's been over a year since we've had James on. Obviously, the markets are totally different. Um, is there any like good, not necessarily from your company, but for, from the sector, Can you just speak on what's happening with the sector and is there light at the end of this tunnel? Sure. And and thanks for having me back on. And and yeah, it's been a year and guys, we we've just changed 180 degrees um, and mostly because of resources and and the the market dynamics. Uh, uh, I think I mentioned last time I'm on the board of bio. So I'm pretty close to a lot of things going on in Capitol Hill, including uh, some material things that I can't talk about that I just found out about yesterday. But let's just say there'll be some good news coming from Congress with the F- in regards to the FDA. So that is a very positive light at the end of the tunnel that, that's coming. But uh, more importantly, yes, you, I, the sector is just under fire. Um, and I think a lot of it has to do, unfortunately, on a macroeconomic perspective with the administration. Um, there's just a lot of uncertainty. And when there's uncertainty in the market, people pull their money out. And, and uh, what we've lost in the last year are a lot of institutional investors, a lot of people who decided biotech is too risky. Uh, there's too much, uh, too many questions on pricing. There's too many questions on FDA. Quite frankly, it took a very long time for the Biden administration to fill in the vacancy at the FDA level. Um, and uh, there's been a lot of folks uh, that uh, Scott Golly put in who were, you know, golly, in my opinion, was the best FDA commissioner we've ever had in my 38 years in the business. Um, he put in a lot of a lot of good people. Uh, they're all exiting at this point. So that, that concerns the investors as well, uh, because they're not quite sure what's going to happen, for instance, with accelerated approval, with orphan programs, with 505B2. Uh, there's an aggressive move to uh, get more biologicals on the market. Uh, even the generic companies are quite not quite sure, you know, what studies they need to put forward to get approval. So when there's that much uncertainty, not only in the investment community, but in regulatory and policy, guess what? Everybody moves their money to the sidelines. They'd rather sit on cash than invest in companies. Now, for instance, uh, I'm out raising money now. This, this is public information, so I don't mind saying it. Uh, we filed an S1 uh, earlier this week. Um, so the terms of my deal are out there and I've been talking to investors for the last couple of days. And 
Their concern is not with my company. They love what we're doing. Their concern is what's going to happen to the share price. If I put in money today, is the share, is the share price going to be minus 40% tomorrow? Because basically where we were last year, a $100 million cap company, we're down to three or four million now. Now we've lost complete value in our company, but I can tell you not much has changed uh, from the clinical perspective. In fact, Adrilopase, our main asset has moved forward. We're very, I can talk about that with, afterwards. Uh, Neclosamide, which is another one of our assets because of lack of funds, I put that on the back burner for now because we simply can't afford to move forward on the trials. Um, and neclosamide, that's the one that's in the phase two for um, ulcerative proctosis. Proctitis, yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. And um, so that, going back to your original question, that's the state of the market. Uh, I, I'm not the only CEO. I, there's hundreds, I mean, I mean hundreds of us who are making decisions like this, who see. Um, have to peel back on clinical programs because and peel back on people. Uh, Novartis just announced huge layoffs in California. Uh, the whole industry is laying people off. Uh, I, I don't mean to be the, the the sayer of doom and gloom, but it just hasn't been that. No, great. no, we we need <laughs> to get into that. So Novartis, where did they lay it? Where did these layoffs happen in the in the research in R and D or in sales or where? In R and D, uh, they basically in California they acquired a, a company uh, and basically laying everybody off. I forgot the name of the company, so I apologize. I see, but I see. You know, I do read about the layoffs. Um, Biogen is laying people off. You know, some of the big biotech companies are laying people off as well. Um, my company, we've reduced our force by over 60% in the last year. I've had no choice. Mm. Um, I've had to cl close down my California office. Um, a lot of investors say, well, James, your burn is still pretty high. Why are you burning so much capital? Well, uh, those of you who are in the CRO world know, well, just because a, st a study stops doesn't mean that I don't have to pay the CRO. There's still <laughs> investigator fees that need to get paid. There's still project management fees, all those things that need to happen. Those people still need to get paid. I mean, they put their work in and their time in. Um, and closing down offices isn't that, isn't that easy. I, I closed our French office. It took me two years to do that. French law, you, you have to keep people gainfully employed. In California, which is the toughest employment laws in this country, um, we had to close our office as well. I'm still giving legal explanation as to why we closed it. Wow. It's, and it's it's actually perfect that we have Robert Goldman on as well. Robert Goldman, you guys may recognize him. He's been on the shows before. He's a study director, sponsor level. I actually, you guys are the perfect two guests to have on because um, we're seeing at the CRO side and at the site side, I mean, as a site owner, it's busier than it's ever been. And at the CROs, they can't hire enough CRAs. Like they just cannot, there's a labor shortage. And what you're telling me is at the sponsor side, especially at the smaller cap sponsors, um, it's the opposite. And you're putting studies on pause or not even starting some studies. You know, Dan, I'll jump in and, and James is absolutely right. You know, as the audience knows, I also work for a small cap company. Um, we're privately held at the moment. Obviously, um, the IPO was planned, but you know, with these capital markets, it had to be postponed. Um, but I, I talk to our chief medical officer, our CEO, our CFO, our COO, you know, on a daily basis, and we also um, have had to make you know decisions just like James just described. You know. What asset do we focus on? Um, do we postpone an asset we thought we were going to get EUA for because it's, you know, that, that ship has sailed? Um, you know, the different pathways and strategies to get, you know, your NDA filed um, are, are really pressing based on available finances. And like James said, the investors have their money on the sidelines. Um, you know, having a company pre-IPO in phase three of development, you would think five years ago, maybe forget five years ago, three years ago, that's in a very enticing investment opportunity. You know, you're in phase three, um, depending on the indication, it's, you know, high likelihood, still potential to fail, but it, it's more promising than in a preclinical or phase one or phase two. But we're experiencing the exact same thing. And because of funding, you know, running these clinical trials, like James said, it's extraordinarily expensive. The pressure is 
incredible. The vendor costs, the pass-through costs, the direct costs, um, just to maintain. And then of course, reimbursing, paying your investigator grants, maintaining the thresholds needed to ensure the continuity of a study, especially for a lead asset is unbelievably stressful. And these concessions that James has described in terms of closing offices, laying off workforces, nobody enjoys doing that, but you're left with your back up against the wall where you have no choice. So it's interesting because, you know, Biogene and ESI, you see all these, I mean, go on LinkedIn, right? You see hundreds and hundreds, let's call it thousands actually of jobs in our industry that are available, yet there's other influencers that you see. If there's so many jobs available, why are the interview processes so laborious? Why are there 19 different stages? And it seems like nobody can fill those jobs. And then on the same token, the CRO side has this insane resourcing shortage. You know, I oversee two different CROs for a phase two and a phase three program. And both CROs for my counterparts, when we have these, you know, um, managerial discussions, if you will, they both indicate resourcing is a tremendous problem. So turnover is huge. Competition for talent is huge, but it's a completely different ball of wax on the sponsor side. Just to echo what James said, it's, it's absolutely the way it is. Um, can I, oh, can I ahead, add James. something? Yeah, yeah, please, something? please. Uh, I think Robert's touched upon something uh, incredibly important because of what your audience is normally listening to. So on the CRO side, why is there so much turnover? Uh, and, and I agree, it, it's tough to keep people on your team at the CRO. I think at the CRA level, Dan, you, you mentioned there's just a huge amount of opportunities. CRAs just aren't staying. Um, and I think it's the new workforce. I think it's the new normal that's happened you know, post-pandemic that People don't really want to travel that much. Uh, and if they travel, they want to stay within a regional area. So uh, doing a, a national study or an international study, it's, it's tough to get people. Um, it's tough to get CRAs on, on site. Uh, they rather do things via Zoom. Um, and as we all know, those of us who have been in this business for a long time, uh, the CRAs are the most effective are the ones who are on site talking to staff, Looking through the looking through the notebooks, looking through all the information that's there. You know, Dan, you you have a couple of sites, so you know that it's important for that face-to-face -face interaction. And um, I, I'm not going to sound like an old man because I've got kids, you know, in their 20s and millennials. But uh, they, it, it's tough. It's tough to get people that you know who are used to growing up and with social media, uh, doing face-to-face, -face, uh, getting in someone's lap. Uh, which is where the core business really is. Um, and I think that's why we have a fair amount of turnover, especially at the lower levels of, of the CROs. It's tough to fill the, those positions. So is it, I'm trying to draw comparisons to this in, in 2008, because I remember in 2008, the big pharma. So I remember we had a study with Sanofi and then almost overnight, like when Lehman brother went bankrupt, Sanofi Aventus called us and said, Hey, no more patient visits, early term, everyone. And then this happened like two other big pharmas too that we had studies with. I'm not seeing that this time. What, I, what I'm hearing is, and I have a theory that maybe after this recession, big pharma gets bigger because they're signing more lucrative deals with smaller cap companies or just acquiring them, like you said, acquiring and then laying off redundancy. Do you think that's a possible outcome of what happens here? Like somehow the industry still stays busy, but the smaller caps kind of at, at the cost of the smaller companies in, in the space? Well, look, I, I can tell you wholeheartedly. I worked for 17 years in large pharma out of my 38 years. And uh, my last, you know, actually then Gilead, which was small at the time, but now it's a large biotech. So I was at the level where I was making these decisions. So, uh, and being part of the teams making these decisions. Absolutely, you're 100% correct. The big pharma is gonna start acquiring these small compounds. They are all over the place. Their B team, BD teams are very busy. In fact, the upcoming JP Morgan meeting in, in, in January, lots of folks are considering, do we go, do we not go? I can tell you almost every hotel sold out. I'm assuming <laughs> that big pharma has already purchased all the, the hotel rooms, 
But what's going to happen, and having been the big farmer, I can tell you this. Yes, they're going to acquire these companies. It's going to be a 50% hit rate on what works and what doesn't work. And then they get into their resource allocation meetings in the middle of the year. If you don't have the right champion, and people move in big pharma too. So if you don't have the right champion, you may have acquired a company for $2 billion. It's no longer a strategic option. So that's gone. So it's a lot of write-offs. And that's really what you saw happening in 2009, 2010, was a massive amount of write-downs from big pharma getting rid of, of, of people, getting rid of companies. So however you define it, it's a mass, a very mass consolidation that's going to happen. Uh, and that's not good. And at, 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 at bio, that's what we talk about. We talk about the fact that there's probably gonna be 150 to 160 less drugs approved in the next 10 years. That's a lot when you think about how many drugs get approved per year. If you get 25 drugs approved per year, then on average, you're looking at 16 over the next decade per year that don't make it because there aren't enough companies to move them forward. And it's got very little to do with the CROs or anything else out there. The sites has to do with how they're going to spend their money. Because at the end of the day, big pharma, big bio is looking at profitability and return on investment to the shareholders. And if they've got to cut the overhead, they will in order to get to their quarterly numbers. Uh, so you're seeing a whole lot of consolidation. Uh, I'm hoping that Congress comes to its senses. Everyone's talking about price controls and all that. If that happens, um, you can forget about the biotech industry in this country. It's wow. happened in Japan. It's happened in Europe. Those industries have this. I don't mean it'll go down to zero, but it'll go down by 60, 70 percent. Which is going to which is going to directly inhibit bringing these life changing therapies to those who need them. I know it's cliche, but that that should concern everybody watching this video and, and you know, encourage you to to write to those decision makers, because when small biotech is either consumed by large pharma or James I actually wanted to ask you a question not to get sidetracked. Are you seeing licensing deals and opportunities because small cap companies are so desperate for cash consumption and in an infusion, you know, you as a CEO, would you potentially entertain now something you wouldn't have entertained two years ago in terms of, Hey, I'm going to come to you and I'll, I want to license out one of your assets that you can't push forward due to financial restraints. And I mean, is, do you see that happening more and more? Is that the same as consolidation? Because you're losing the rights to that because you're licensing it, but you're desperate for an infusion to keep one of your assets going. Absolutely. You're seeing a whole lot of that happening around the industry. However, there's a caveat. Uh, I'll give you some uh, insider information. There's a caveat that some people in the rest of the world don't see. And that is when you're trying to license a product out, um, unless you've got a gazillion contacts, you know, someone like me, I've been around a long time, but I still try to use a third party to help me broker that out. And like any third party, if your deal size isn't big enough, they're not going to touch you. Mm. So what you're seeing, the deals that are getting done are companies that A, have a lot of cash to do that, uh, or they, their market cap is sizable enough that they're going to, you know, the third party brokering this will get enough capital uh, or return for, for their time. So what you're not seeing is just a lot of smaller companies that aren't able to, to get themselves on some kind of roster because no one's going to touch them. They're just too small. So a lot of these companies are just going to wither on the vine. Now, you said something interesting, Robert, before about your private company. Um, SEC, there's some, a ruling just came out on, on Friday, I think last week. SEC is putting a kibosh on a lot of IPOs right now uh, with market caps or potential market caps of 50 million or less. Uh, so they're not, you're not allowed, you can't go IPO. So what happens to those companies? Uh, and what happens to those products? Uh, some of them are in preclinical or they're not fortunate enough to be in phase three, they're in phase one, they're doing the safety data, they're down to a million dollars in cash and they have no prayer because there's no private market right now and there's no IPO market available to them. So going back, Dan, um, 
I hate to be the, the, the say doom and gloom. However, the, the Inflation Reduction Act, which is anything but, uh, they talked about price controls. Um, so prices are going to go up. I'll tell you that because basically the way the, the law reads, it's, it's Medicare negotiation for just Medicare patients. It's not price negotiation for private patients, private insurers. So what the pharma right. companies are going to do to try to uh, kind of keep their profit margins where they are is they're just going to raise prices in the private insurance. So the everyday person who's actually paying money into Medicare is going to wind up paying more because what are the insurers going to do? They're going to pass that cost on to the consumer through co-pays and, and other, other functionalities. So what Congress is doing in order to, you know, the Democrats, I hate to blame the particular party because the Republicans voted on this as well, in order to get votes, they're basically sacrificing the middle class again. Um, yeah. Because price controls are bad, no matter which way you look at it. The best thing to do is to bring pharma around the table, which I have to tell you, I've been part of those meetings. We've been, during the Trump administration, we were there trying to negotiate with them on drug pricing. So it's not that the industry does not want to negotiate. They do. But we're not willing to negotiate unless the insurance industry comes in at the table as well. Because they're the middle people. They're charging a lot of money. It's kind of like going back to your, your if, if we wanted to negotiate pricing on clinical trials, we wouldn't do it just on pharma. We want the CROs in. We want the sites in. We want all representation so that we can all work together to say, okay, what's a reasonable profit? What's, you know, without, you know, conflict of interest issues with, with the FTC coming in. So we, we like to speak in generalities, but to go out and flat out pass a, a law that's going to price control drugs is insane. And it's very, very, very bad for consumers. Imagine if you did that in other industries. It, it would be horrible. You know, and it's like you see so many political ads on TV right now. Um, you know, <laughs> I live in Arizona and I'll, you know, I'm, I'm just going to call out Mark Kelly right now. Um, a, a proclaimed self-independent, but he's really not. Um, he sides, you know, mostly with democratic viewpoints, which is, I'm not going to get political here either, but I'm just saying from, from that perspective, you know, he advocates, oh, I'm, I'm standing up to big pharma and I'm price control, price control. It's amazing how the public doesn't understand how pricing even comes about. Mm -hmm. It's not about greed. Okay, when you, I mean, you know, the, the general public doesn't understand the, 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 the amount of money it takes from preclinical to get a drug across the finish line. So it ends up in your pharmacy so that you can go and pick this drug up and take it. It's hundreds of millions of dollars, the manpower and hours and political um, hurdles that have to be met and, and the, the bureaucratic hurdles that have to be, you know, sought through are it's incomprehensible to a layman and it, they're just all about like greed and price. And so if, if, if we could under, you know, if they could understand the things that James goes through that our companies go through the hurdles, we have to navigate the burn that we have, the sacrifices we have to make to bring therapies to market, to change lives, then they would understand where this pricing comes from, as opposed to just saying, Oh, we're going to have this inflation reduction act. I'm going to trust what I'm being told. And by proxy, the price of a drug is going to come down to something more affordable, which is not going to happen for the reasons James just absolutely is correct in indicating it's going to go up. And yeah. it's not because of greed. Yeah, I agree. I mean, we, we're about to launch a study. Uh, I have a cystic fibrosis, same sites that we used before, same uh, principal investigators we used before. Uh, the study went from $100,000 a patient in 2020, 2021 to $134,000 a patient. Uh, same exact site. It's probably going to be the same exact patients. Uh, but who am I to go to the investigator and say, why are you charging me this much? I mean, what's the, you know, the bottom line is these investigators, they have costs, their insurance rates went up. Uh, getting patients transported, it's gone up, all of these things have gone up. So I'm very sensitive to the sites because these are our bread and butter people. These are people that, you know, help patients get better. So um, 
collectively, you know, as an industry, we we have to try to work better and, and work and be a little bit more reasonable. Now, I, I know you have a lot of CRO listeners and viewers, Dan, so I'll try to be, be very politically correct. Um, you know, you have a lot of CROs, large ones that have sold themselves to private uh, equity firms and things of that sort, and their profit engines. Um, they don't quite understand healthcare as well as they could. So their prices have gone way, way up as well, trying to glean as much profit as possible. Um, because if first wave doesn't do business with them, they're going to get another small biotech to do business with them tomorrow. Um, and so it's, it's cascading. Uh, what you're seeing now uh, is big pharma starting to bring a lot of clinical uh, ops back internally. Mm. So uh, I think you might start seeing some pressure on pricing with the CROs. Because yeah. The Mercs, the Sanofis, they're hiring uh, and building a more going back to the early eighties where they're bringing in more internal people. And you know what, to piggyback off of that, Dan, sorry to interrupt here, but you know, James is absolutely again, correct. I mean, yeah, right on the money <laughs> it's and, and, but there's an advantage to that, right? So as a sponsor representative, okay. We have very little control over, you know, who is allocated to our study, what kind of portfolio, you know, these CROs are allocating resources to, you know, the, 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 the large accounts where there's a, you know, a $500 million portfolio being conducted <laughs> over five studies and the back to bill ratio, they've got, you know, two, two, three billion in work that hasn't even started yet. They're mm. getting the A plus performers. Yeah. Companies like me who are coming in, who, oh, you know, we do have another phase three study. We're, we're not exactly hundred percent sure when we're going to start it. It's all based on funding. They're giving us this, the C squad. Okay. And I'm not talking about any particular study. So if any of your <laughs> viewers are watching and they know who I am and it, it's not about you, so but, but if you think <laughs> it, it might is, be, it might, it might be, about be. You. <laughs> it might be about you. We don't but, care. We're not pro yeah. CRO on this channel. Well, you know, and so the, the, the problem is, is their fees and their direct costs, like James said, are going through the roof. And the reason to internalize your own staff is because you can control it way, way better. And I have more control over who's coming on to the study. I constantly get entry-level CRAs who are brand new hires proposed for my pain study. You, you know, pain monitoring a pain trial, a subjective data is very, very, very different. It's a whole different ball of wax than looking at any objective endpoint, right? It either cleared or it didn't clear. The number went up or it went down. Pain is all in the eye of the beholder, right? It's all subjective. That's why we have all these different scales to corroborate and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But my point is many sponsors, even smaller ones have the ambition. I can tell you from my point of view, we would love to internalize and completely cut out the CRO, but again, to have the resources to build out that infrastructure, having the SOPs, having the work instruction, having everything internalized from data management to clean ops, to pharmacovigilance, to safety, to medical, to biostats, to data management, having that all internal, you have a, a control over who's working on your study versus the CRO. Well, there's nothing in your MSA indicating you require X amount of years of experience. So it's like, you know, you can only push back so much before it, it actually starts working against you. You know, you can only decline four or five resources, but then again, the FDA expects us to have the appropriate oversight of the CRO. And in an audit situation, you know, would it ever come down to, well, hey, why did your company allow this person who was very underqualified based on training and experience to be monitoring or leading your type of a study? What am I going to come back and say, well, that's all the CRO had to offer me? They're not probably going to buy that excuse. So what, I mean, it's interesting that Thermo Fisher bought PPD last year and no one really talked about it. Like, I mean, that's a sponsor acquiring one of the biggest CROs there have ever been. There's only like four left. <laughs> Who, who's going to buy the other three? And then what's going to happen? Well, you raise an interesting question. So PPD is one of, they've done a couple of my studies. Um, and in my last company, when I was a contributor, I wound up suing PPD uh, and won. <laughs> um, 
this is before they were acquired by Thermo Fisher because of their project management costs were just off, you know, they were quadruple dipping. Um, and, and that's what they do. So if anybody's out there running companies, I was oh, I always tell them, you know, just look at the fine detail and make sure that your, your controller's involved with everything you do. But uh, yeah, I mean, PPD is a fine example. I don't mind talking about a study we just closed. I, I'm not going to say anything out of school, but you know, to Robert's point, they we did a COVID trial. They had a very young CRA. Um, trial wasn't moving at all. So I, I decided we have six sites in, in the Miami area. I, I went down myself uh, during the pandemic and had a dinner. We're all sitting there with our masks on. I flew in my CMO and we talked to the site managers ourselves. Um, uh, and and I speak Spanish, so I did some of it in Spanish. And and um, <laughs> you did we, a site uh, visit as the CEO of a biotech. I, I did. It. I did. I love it. I brought them all wow. to dinner, and because we weren't enrolling, and PPD was giving me all sorts of excuses, um, the CRA actually came, uh, and she sat next to one of my people. Uh, I got to tell you, our enrollment, and maybe Omicron had something to do with it, but. Uh, our enrollment increased like 80 or 90% within two weeks of having that dinner. And where we projected to close the trial in April of this year, we closed it in January. Uh, and that dinner was held in November. That's how quickly we enrolled. Um, to the point I've got a very good personal relationship now with these sites. They call me. Uh, I give, you know, I mentor one of these guys who owns one of the sites. Um, I think that's what Rob was talking about. When you, when you have... Uh, personal involvement from sponsor uh, and you bypass the CRO a little bit, you get things done. Um, and we're seeing that more and more. Um, I'm very hands-on CEO. Uh, I like to see results. I want to get things done. But more or less, not because that's who I am, but it's more of, that's what my investors expect. I mean, they they give us their hard-earned cash. They want us, they want to see results. Um, and if, if something's not getting enrolled because, you know, people are twiddling their thumbs or because the CRA doesn't feel like flying to Arizona uh, to, <laughs> to do a site visit, you know, what the hell? I mean, we've got to be in there. We've got, we've got to manage that. And, you know, I've got a ClinOps team as well. There's only a couple of them, so they can't be everywhere. Um, but they expect the CROs and the CRAs to be out there doing what you're supposed to be doing. That's what we're paying them for. This is such an interesting conversation. I mean, I didn't expect it to go this way, but I think it's good because it, it speaks to um, a larger scale of what's actually happening. I don't think investors, James and Robert, but James, especially because you have a publicly traded company. I don't think investors understand all this stuff. And if they actually look under the hood and see what you guys are dealing with, I mean, I've always said anecdotally as a side owner, it's I much prefer to work directly with sponsors than with a CRO involved. It's always more pleasant. Somehow the CRAs are more on it. Um, we get more uh, we get better communication with with the sponsor. Um, and that's just anecdotally, but it's nice to hear from people at the top of these sponsor organizations kind of expressing similar frustrations with the CROs. So are we at the point now where the CROs have gotten too big and maybe, at the same time, site networks are increasing and these site networks are getting sophisticated. I mean, you've got some of them investigative research organizations. They're basically a CRO without calling themselves mm -hmm. that, but they have like 80 sites. Like my company, DSC, we have 80 sites across the country. We own maybe three or four of them, but the rest pay us a monthly fee. We help them grow. And we go to a sponsor and say, hey, you know, Takeda, we have 80 sites. Let us know what indications you need. Boom, boom, boom. So, And there's others, too, like doing it way more sophisticated than we are. Do you think that's possibly a future, like, for at the end of this recession, like, on the other side of this? Or do you think the CROs are here to stay? Well, I, 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 would, I would ask Robert to chime in, but uh, my feeling is the these – your sites and the, these coordinated sites that are huge, you need more uh, to add to your sites. You need pharmacovigilance, you need data monitoring, you need all those things that the CRO can provide because we can't do that as a small sponsor. Um, it's too expensive for us to do it. And it's actually too expensive for us to outsource it as well. There's plenty of small companies that do these types of things, um, uh, different ad like quality, all these types of things. However, the CROs 
have built themselves into a, you know, a one-stop shop. Um, and I think the you know your sites are going to compete with that. Uh, it, it's a tough one. Um, and I think if if the sites, if, if you want to get more and more profitable, you're just going to add more cost to the clinical trials. Uh, and eventually, it, 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 there's, there's not, it's, when you get price controls that are coming, that takes the elasticity, I'm using an economic term, but it takes the elasticity out of, of the model. Um, because at one point, it's going to be a finite price. All of us, we do, you know, big farmer down to small companies, we do our, our Excel spreadsheets and our forecast to see what we can do, what things should cost. And if we can't go out, I mean, I can tell you all my conversations today, every single investor asks me at the end, what's the use of proceeds? If we give you capital, where are you going to use it? How are you going to use it? How long is it going to last? And that's all based on a forecast I have. So fast forward to 2024, and I've got enough capital through 2024, and I have forecasted a 10, 15% increase in, in, in clinical costs by year. But if it winds up going up 30%, I'm screwed, which is what I've done when the close might. I put it on the back burner for now because I just I simply can't afford these trials. And I'll, I'll piggyback off of that, Dan, you know, um, I think CROs are here to stay, but I will give a different type of a viewpoint. I think these IROs um, and these large SMO networks are really doing a disservice to our industry in the fact that you are losing quality controls. I have worked with some of the sites that I'm currently working with a decade ago, and I don't blame the PI but the quality of work that continues to come in day, uh, day over day is exponentially lower than it was 10 years ago. So as places grow, whether it's a CRO, whether it's a biotech, whether it's a site SMO, whether it's an IRO, you lose the quality control, right? So Dan, let's just use Yuma clinical trials as an example. You know, right now you have the oversight and the fine tuning ability to control and ensure the data quality Alcoa standards that any sponsor would expect at the end of the day, right? When companies start getting this large and they have no choice but to hire a body to fill a role, and I hate to say it, but it just seems like all you really need is a pulse these days. Um, and you, you see the direct result in terms of quality. You know, that's what it's all about. Simple things being missed, important protocol deviations being had. And as a sponsor, you own these things. So when these things end up happening, you, you, you take it to the bank with you and then you end up explaining why your intent to treat population um, is 75% is larger than your per protocol population. And then your modified intent to treat population is just as, is a little bit, you know, right underneath your, your, your intent to treat population, meaning from a stats perspective, you know, and then you're trying to write your CSR and you're trying to indicate statistical significance against your endpoint. It all comes back to quality. So CROs are here to stay but they're going to have to adapt and have better quality control measures. That's why if you look on LinkedIn, you see so many process improvement positions, whether it's a director of process improvement, a, this, you know, process improvement from clinical development, you know, protocol design implementation. But like James says, companies like, you know, that, that like, you know, smaller cap companies, we don't have the money to bring in the resources. So it's a double-edged sword. It's, it's too expensive to do it internally. And it's also getting, getting to become too expensive even to outsource it to the CROs. And the type of people that are performing in these roles are just not qualified. I'm being honest with you. They're just not qualified to be performing at this level. I'll give you an example. I am mentoring, um, you know, I do a little bit of mentoring as well. And one of the guys that I'm working with, he's super ambitious, super hungry, comes to me. I helped him, you know, work on his CV. He gets an interview with AbbVie. And I just, I was like, what, who dropped the ball? 
that you're interviewing for a lead data manager level two position when you're you have no business even being a clinical study coordinator, let alone a lead data manager. And mm -hmm. I asked him, I'm like, do you even know what a data review spec is? Do you know what a data monitoring plan is? Do you know what, you know, do, would you know how to produce and write this type of a plan? Would you know how to create CRFs? Do you know what edit checks would be required? He's like, no, but, but maybe they would train me. But do you see what I'm trying to say, Dan? Like, like how did, <laughs> how did he slip through the cracks and, you know, I felt bad because he was excited about it, but I had to say, well, it's supply and demand, right? And you're looking back, but on the other hand, like you don't want to go into a position and set somebody up for failure. Mm -hmm. So, but the point is the, the sponsors are trying to internalize as much as they can to cut out the CRO, but it's, it's a completely different animal for companies like I work for, for James company, where it's just, what do you do? What choice do we have? When we're bidding out a study, you send out an RFP to four or five CROs and you're listening to them in the bid defense and you're, you're asking, what are the must-haves? What are the nice-to-haves? What are the, well, this would be good to have. And you're negotiating budgets down to bare bones. But like James says, I don't have his experience. Of course not. But I can totally see how his investors are coming to him. And if he under forecasts because he didn't anticipate a 40% inflation, you know, is that his fault? Absolutely not. But guess what? At the end of the day, now he's got no capital to continue the development of, of his compounds. And I can tell you that's a, that, that's happening very, very frequently across a lot of small cap companies, even privately held companies. Like, you know, that miss is, is mission critical to the, the outcome of the, of the, of the company, the outcome of the study, the development program you know, and so how do you go backwards and forecast what's going to happen in the future, right? Site budgets that were negotiated in 2021 and middle of 2021, call it Q2 of 2021, they're night and day difference today. Yeah. They, they don't meet the standard of what was fair market value then. So what do you do? You, you got to do clinical trial agreement amendments and you got to do, you know, everybody wants an increased overhead. Standard overhead, 20, 25%. Now I'm seeing 35 and 40%, Dan. I'm seeing, I'm seeing budgets that are like mind-blowing. I, I just saw <laughs> one the other day for, my, for a COVID study. They wanted us to pay 20% of the investigator's salary. Cause he's dead. Like I've never, I mean, this, I go wow, to this zero, I go for everything. 20% <laughs> of the salary of the coordinator of the, of the pharmacist, of the investigator of the, like they want us, they, they want you. So if the investigator is making 350,000 a year, it's a one-time non-refundable payment of 70 grand. Wow. Plus, go ahead. Jay. Let, me, let me just take a, a step back. What, what, what changed the, the whole industry uh, and I truly believe this. Uh, it happened while I was a big pharma was the the, the uh, birth of the procurement agent. Uh, and big pharma, they started bringing in these procurement people to make decisions on costs for CROs, manufacturing, people who are finance backgrounds, but had no qualifications in terms of quality. Uh, so the price won of winning. <laughs> and you had to be, you know, you, you, you know, I'm a little older than you guys. So you, you probably didn't experience this. But you had to be a qualified, you know, vendor in order to get any business in the bar. And but once you got it, you were in for life. You know, it's very hard to get you out. So what's happened? Let's let's talk about this. Twenty five years later, is you've got these these you know PPD and these large CROs, Covents that have these deals with Lilly or Roche and Merck and whatever, and they're just they just price ten percent above every single year. The procurement agent signs off on it. Okay, that's reasonable. And what you realize is you probably need four or five studies to do that one that they signed off on. And these costs have just gone way, way out of control. And uh, the wrong people are, 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 are watching this. You need better people. Even at the big happens, what Robert's to, yeah, I agree with him, they're gonna try to get away with murder with the small companies. They're gonna ask you for whatever they can. And if you don't do it, um, you know, they're going to go to a bigger company. So do, do you think that be, with this recession, do you think this is a necessary correction to kind of weed out some of that fat 
right? Like from the from the middleman, from the from the procurement agents. Do you think this is necessary? Will we see that contraction? Because like I just said, you know, big pharma is getting bigger. We are seeing more studies. So we're like, what's the outcome here? Like, does it get better? That, that's a great question. Uh, so number one, an answer in two parts. First part is, you know, a lot of people uh, in the pharmaceutical business will say, well, you need a contraction. It's, it's, it's kind of like the Godfather movie. You know, you got to have a, you got to have a war every once in a while. Um, and many of these, there's too many companies, there's too many public companies out there. Maybe some of them should die on the vine. Okay. Well, my answer to that is, and this is, I'm still completing the first answer, is the FDA has said that these companies have viable products. They filed an IND. Had they not had a viable product, the FDA would have rejected them outright. So who are we to say that 10% or 20% of these companies should die on the vine? Because maybe these drugs are viable. The fact is they don't have the right economic model to bring them forward. That doesn't mean they're bad drugs. They might be excellent drugs and you might be throwing the baby out with the bathwater. That's the first, that's my first part of the answer. The second answer is, is a much more uh, conspicuous, which is big companies never realize that what the result is going to be of what they're doing. Basically, so it's it's the ostrich sticking their head in the ground. Big pharma, they're hearing price controls, they're hearing all of this stuff. I can tell you unequivocally. 10 years ago, sitting at bio board meetings, we were already telling Sanofi and Novo, do something about, and Lily, do something about your insulin prices. Because if, especially me, I was very outspoken. I remember when we launched Humulin at Lily, it was 1237 a vial. I still remember that from 1983. So, and the fact that Humulin's selling for $250 a vial, something's in, in, incredibly wrong with that. And that was 10 years ago. And they're like, nah, this will blow over. That's big pharma. That's what they think. This will blow over. Don't worry, it's going to go away. Now everyone's getting their butt kicked in over insulin prices. They've lowered it down to $40 a vial, even before the Biden administration said anything. The prices are already lower, but it's too late. The dike is broken. So now they're bringing another price control. So what happens, with it, to answer your question more completely, Dan, the CROs, Thermal Fisher is a huge, huge company. Do you really think that they might even for its semblance of a second say, I think we need to correct our prices because if not, we're endangering the next 10 years of our business. They don't think that way. They think everything's cyclical. This will all blow over. We're going to continue getting enough customers or they go to their sales or business development. People say, if, if we, if we cap this cost, what's it going to do? And they'll tell, they'll be told, don't worry about it because their bonuses depend on it. Their stock options depend on it. We're going to go out and get you more business. Don't worry about it. So big companies will never contract their pricing. They, they're just not going to do it. And the quicker the Congress understands that, that's called free enterprise. That's what capitalism is built on. The faster they're going to realize that the only thing you're hurting is the end user, which is the patient. Uh, big CROs, big pharma, I'm telling you right now, I know they're CEOs. They don't care. They say they care. They don't. It's about returning uh, ROI to their, their investors every quarter. And neither do politicians. <laughs> neither do I agree. I agree. Yeah. It's unfortunate, but man, that is just spot on. Wow. So when do we talk about first wave biopharma? <laughs> James, oh, this make, is amazing. I'll make it quick. I mean, you heard a lot of the story. We we spent 14, 15 months uh, looking at our formulation with a Julepace. I can tell you we, we've decreased our cost of goods on the product by 80% in the last 14 months. So we're about to launch another uh, study uh, the second half of this year within a couple of months. That's what I'm raising capital for right now. It's going to be a small study for cystic fibrosis patients. Uh, we already have potential partners on the table. They're waiting for that outcome. That study will be this, uh, hopefully by the second quarter of next year. We hope it's a positive outcome and then we're off to the races. We'll be able to raise more capital from our partners and be able to go back to niclosamide. Now, niclosamide is a primary example. Uh, Robert will shake his head at this one. So when we acquired First Wave Bio, uh, we had a proctitis study that I talked to you about last time, Dan. We had 1B data was excellent. 
Um, patients uh, showed better remission rates versus uh, bunesonide, which is out there. Um, and then the rules changed. So when we got to phase two, um, the FDA is requiring what's called a central reader now, uh, meaning that uh, anyone who's, uh, you need a third party to review every single endoscopy, every single piece of study that, that we're doing. And that happened midstream. So guess what? The study was empowered for that, the phase two study, nor uh, can we go back to look at all the patients we've done before because we don't have the film. So a lot of this is done in Europe. So we stopped the study. Uh, we opened up the trial. We stopped it. Our wow. investigators were really pissed off. I mean, the CRO was angry as well. We had to have a, 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 a payoff scheme to pay them off for lost business. And the invest we had to pay off all the investigators. It cost us a million and a half to just shut down the study and not get any more patients. But, you know, the FDA tweaked something and, we, you know, that happened. Wow. Um, they tweaked it mid-study or? Um... Well, they tweaked the rules and we just happened to be in the middle of the study. Oh, they don't really gosh. look across, they don't really look across the, the industry to see who they're going to hurt. They don't really care. It, it doesn't matter to them. They, 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 they figured this is what we want in the GI studies and the division made a decision. Uh, and it happens. It happens all the time. Big Pharma, it's a rounding error for them. Uh, wow. They're able to deal with it. <laughs> a couple, a company like us, it's disastrous. Do you so think my big share pharma, price went from like six bucks to a dollar? Do you think big pharma? I mean, is this like a way for them? You know, everybody knows they're famous for lobbying. Do you think this is a way for them to keep new entrants, like more barriers to entry? Basically, like oh, let's throw this uh, central reader um, requirement in the middle of a study. No, no, I don't think so at all. I think Big Pharma, you know, wants to make it as simple as possible. That's more profitable for them. They certainly don't want to get small companies like me, you know, in trouble. Uh, they want us to be successful so they can buy our products. Right. So I think we're all in the same boat. We all uh, want a, an FDA that's functional, an FDA that uh, is not in confusion. Uh, give you an example. <laughs> I'm going to set Robert off, I think, again. Um, but the problem with FDA right now is um, most of it is virtual. So all of their meetings were used to have, you know, they have 115,000 employees. So where everybody used to meet in, in Rockville, Maryland and sit there in the offices and have these meetings, go, let's go down the hallway to a conference room and let's talk about this. Now they're all on Zoom. Um, so if you think the FDA was not productive before the pandemic and They've put a bunch of resources over to COVID and those resources aren't coming back. And literally the, the top layer of the FDA is being dismissed by the new FDA commissioner and everybody's still virtual and no one wants to come into the office. Think about how productive 115,000 person organization can be. So I would tell you pharmaceuticals, big pharma, small biotech, Robert too, we're pulling our hair out right now. Uh, wanting to make sure that we have a functional FDA. Uh, Congress was thinking about getting rid of user fees, uh, which is the way we fund new employees for the FDA. Imagine that. Like, they're saying, well, if we have user fees, then you're biasing the FDA. Like, what? I mean, yeah, I think if we were paying for a particular employee to work on our case, I view there's an argument there, but that's not, we all throw in user fees. It goes to a pool. The FDA right. uses the pool to, to hire people. It's just Ridiculous. politics have gotten in the way of delivering medicine to people. And that's a huge, huge problem. Absolutely. That's not going to go away anytime soon. Going back to your first question. Unfortunately. Yeah. It, look, there was a party that was very keen on helping the FDA. I can tell you, I've met the senators, Warren Hatch and people like that. They were wonderful. Uh, you know, they didn't love us but understood what our purpose was. The Trump administration changed all of that. They went to war with the industry, as you might remember. They had all the pharmaceutical CEOs at a meeting with Trump, and they all resigned from that committee because of the things that Trump was asking for, which is crazy. And the Biden administration has come in and said, okay, well, you know, the Trump organization administration has already ticked off the pharmaceutical industry. This is an easy layup for us. And that's what they've done. They've taken advantage of it. But it's 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 very very bad for patients. Yeah, I, I remember I once Trump. I remember once Trump uh, suggesting that uh, we don't need an FDA. <laughs> I remember hearing that. It's like wow. Um, okay, yeah, so, brilliant. <laughs> yeah. So first wave by. Okay, so basically most of the questions 
were, as you would imagine, like negative. Um, they're worried about reverse split. They're mm-hmm. wondering if there's any good news to report. You just did report some good news. Um, I'm happy to talk about the reverse splits. Do you want okay. me to answer some of those questions? So, um, yeah, those are unfortunate when we have to do a reverse split. But unfortunately, our market cap dropped to the point that we were going to get delisted by NASDAQ. In fact, uh, I could tell you the company almost went under uh, earlier this year, even though our trials were doing fine. But we had one negative reading in the COVID trial that didn't work. You know, happens, S happens. Um, and our other trials were doing fine. But our stock price kept dropping. Um, and we had no choice. Uh, we met with NASDAQ. We had a panel hearing with them. I, I was there. And they said, okay, you've got, literally, they gave us 11 things that we had to do. Uh, and one of them was getting our price back above a dollar. And the only way to do that is by doing a, a reverse split. There was just no other way around it or we we're going to get delisted. I can tell you 10 out of the 11 things we've done already. Even the NASDAQ panel said, we're giving you an impossible test and you got about a 1% chance you're going to make it. So there was a time that I was thinking about selling off our, our NASDAQ listing. I was trying to figure out a way what to do for the shareholders. But... Um, We've got one more thing to do, uh, and that is to raise $12 million by the end of November. And we're in the midst of doing a raise then. And then once we get that done, NASDAQ will put us in full compliance. So I understand the investors' concerns, but at the end of the day, the goal is to get a drill pace to the position we need it in and sign a very large deal with a, a, a large pharma company, and then all will be well in the world and they will get the return on investment. So the pharma could get bigger. Yeah. Are you confident about that happening, raising the money? Yes and no. I mean, it's a, it's a tough market. I'm hearing a lot of no's. Um, it's it's going to be probably what's called a technical deal. Uh, what that means are hedge funds. Uh, you have hedge funds that have algorithms that come in. These guys, uh, there's probably 10 or 11 of them. They're, they're, they print money. And uh, they're the ones who will come in and, and uh, they can afford to, to do this kind of deal and take this kind of risk. But unfortunately, these hedge funds put a lot of, of, of pressure on the stock price when they come in. But, you know, to me, we have to live to fight another day. Uh, a dollar is a dollar and uh, the cost of capital is, is what it's going to be. Jeez. I mean, <laughs> it sounds and thank you for your time. I mean, it sounds like so stressful. My question would be like just on a macro scale, like why do you keep doing this? Like, is it worth it? <laughs> is it worth all the stress at the end of the day? I mean, you've been in this industry. I'm looking at your LinkedIn right now. So this is not your first rodeo. Okay. My wife asks me the same thing. <laughs> and I'm, work, I'm working from home today. And if she was listening to this, I let her in the, my office. She wants me to quit every single day. Um, the fact is, I retired in 2018, uh, so financially I'm fine. Um, but I got a call from a banker to look at this opportunity. I, I, I read about the drooler pace. I really think it's an unmet need, and, and I've got a couple of friends who have cystic fibrotic kids. I really think this is going to work. Um, so at the end of the day, you know, kind of like my conversation with Robert or before the podcast, I'm in it to help patients. Uh, so, yeah, I agree, Dan, it is extremely stressful. There are days, um, I'm Jewish, I should say that, uh, and I can tell you when we did the stock split, the amount of Nazis that were sending me emails, the F and Jew and this and that, were unbelievable. Uh, wow. So it's, it's, you know, it's not only a professional hit that we get, it's a personal hit as well. Um, somebody emailed my daughter. They found out who my daughter was, that so she works at Pfizer. Seriously? Seriously, uh, there's a lot of nuts out there. So you wow. wonder why you do it. Now, do you want to be in the public eye or not? But at the bottom line, for me, it's uh, it's about helping patients. Um, I, I really don't do it much for financial gain at this point. I, I put my own money into the company. Uh, this summer, I went without a salary in order to to, to make, uh, you know, I, I haven't told that to shareholders. You, you, this, uh, my board knew no one else knew. Uh, I, I smile. I hope to be able to laugh at the end of drive comes forward. Wow, you heard it here first, guys. And yeah, you're right. These people on stock tweets. I mean, 
some of them are you know they're doing due diligence and they're they're mm-hmm. actually commenting like constructive things but there's so much like 80 percent hey mm-hmm. oh this guy's doing it to get rich of course i have no idea but i've interviewed james three times now and i don't get the feeling that that's the case and he said he's put his own money into this as well so i don't think that really happens at the smaller company i think it happens at the big ones actually where it's not their money it does but i think one thing i, I want to educate your, your your audience about and educate you guys because you may not know this so when you look at a 10K, which is our public filing, and you look at everybody's salary and their stock options and all that, for instance, it shows me making about $1.2 million a year. Uh, that's simply not true. Uh, and the reason why it's reported that way, the auditors require, and the SEC requires you to basically they take all your stock options and they place a value on it when they're priced. And that's, that's what's attributed to what you earn. The problem at first way is all those options are way underwater. I can tell you personally, I've lost over half a million dollars that I've invested myself, that I bought my own shares and invested, and they're all underwater. It's gone. So if you want to get my wife angry, you bring her in here and she'll talk to you about it. But, but the, the, bottom, the bottom line is that's what people on stock twits, when they're doing their diligence, that's what they read. They see, okay, this, this guy and CFO, they're all making a million dollars. Because all the stock options that were given to us, are, that's what they were valued at. Now, I don't mind saying this because we're a publicly traded company. When I first started the company, I was awarded a bunch of stock options based on performance to the tune of 3% of the outstanding options. And that's what people see. My value right now is 0.35. So it's less than a third of a percent of, of, of what I own in the company of a $2.5 million cap company. Do the math. So it's my, basically my board and actually all the investors are only going to come in if I get a lot more stock options because that they see that as an incentive. If I continue to do well, if my management team does well, we'll get rewarded with the stock price going up. That's the only way we get rewarded. Yeah. Yeah. But our stock price has gone way down. But from an auditor perspective, take it from me, it, it goes across all pharmaceutical companies even private companies, when you value them, the management company, management team gets value on the stock options. So I don't know what Robert's CEO, I don't even know what company he's in, quite frankly, but say he's making 350000 a year salary, which is market. They probably gave him a bunch of stock options in a private company that when they did the valuation of the company, say it was worth $40 million when it was formed, 5% of that company was worth you know $800,000 to him. And that's so they said 350 plus 800, 1.35 million is, is, is what he's worth. And that's what investors see. But I'm sure if you ask for the CEO privately, he'll say, I'm not, I'm not getting paid even close to that. So, but that, you know, I understand the confusion and why people get ticked off, but they need to really understand finances and, and where the money really is. Sorry for the long answer, but I thought no, that no, would be thank valuable you for, for Thank you for no, sharing that, it. I think we need a platform for this kind of yeah. CEOs to come on biotechs and and explain. So thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's 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 spot on. And um, you can obviously tell that James is not in this for uh, you know financial gain. As a matter of fact, it's probably uh, uh, doing the negative, doing the opposite for him. And he's in it for one reason. And I would call it passion. Um, and, and, you know, that's really what drives me on a daily basis as well. Um, and I have ambitions to, to be like James one day. So James, you're an inspiration. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that, that, that's really all I have to say, but again, this has been very informative and I hope Dan, your audience really listens to the entire podcast because um you know we're gonna force them to listen (laughs) spread the message too tiktok instagram they're gonna listen spread the message because these lessons um discussed during this conversation are need to go need to go viral so that the broader public even if they're not in our industry understands um the driving motivational factors and you know, why we do what we do on a daily basis. Cause I, I asked myself like, gosh, you know, I'm, I'm so stressed out myself and I'm not even close to in James position answering to investors, but it's, it's all out of passion. So yeah, I agree. I, I've got two kids in the business. 
now myself out of my four kids uh i we all love what we do and, and it's all about helping patients that that's the bottom line you know i I'm, i i don't want to sound morbid but i say this all the time i i can go to my final resting place knowing that i helped a lot of people and and i was a difference maker and that's really all that matters to me the money comes and goes it's material things it's uh it's more about helping your, your fellow human beings that's really what counts What's the yeah. legacy and the impact you're going to leave behind, right? Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, every time I interview James, I get that. And a lot of these smaller cap biotech CEOs, I often joke with my PI, like, hey, let's work with these smaller sponsors because they're not corrupted yet. Like, this is, what, <laughs> this is how we talk about the site. Like, let's work with them now before Pfizer buys them. And so, yeah, so thank you, James, so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thank you for your candor. Thank you for your passion for setting us straight as uh, investors, shareholders, um, people in the industry. Thank you for the conversation on the CROs. And uh, hopefully things get better, man. Hopefully I'll be rooting for you and um, we'll be following up for sure. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. And thank you, Robert, for being co-host. Amazing insights as well. You are the perfect co-host for this episode. So thank you as well. My pleasure, Dan. Thanks for having me as well. And James, great to have you and um, wishing everybody uh, the best. Yeah. Shana Tova, Robert. All righty. <laughs> like, subscribe, comment, share. Bye-bye, guys.